Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. Since 1931, five families have run New York's Italian-American Mafia. The names are familiar. Bonanno, Colombo, Gambino, Genovese, and Lucchese. But times have changed, especially since the days of John Gotti, who liked to bask in the limelight. Is the mob as powerful? Could another mob war be brewing? News Force Chief Investigative Reporter Jonathan Deese joins us now with the state of the mob. Yeah, Chuck, and last night's mob hit, it's too soon to know if it's an internal struggle for power inside the Gambino crime family or some other personal or business dispute. But what the FBI says, while the mob has been taking a low profile in recent years, the five families are still very much in business. If this hit was a mafia power play, the FBI and NYPD have a message about the bloodshed last night on a Staten Island street. I think they've learned that the attention um, is not good for business. The Joint Organized Crime Task Force now deploying dozens of agents and officers to this case. The task force has been busy in recent years dealing with organized crime suspects. While taking a lower profile, investigators say they've certainly not gone away, changing some of their alleged rackets with the times. A far cry from the late John Gotti, the flashy Gambino crime boss of the 80s and 90s, who took over after the sensational 1985 gangland shooting of Paul Castellano outside Sparks Steakhouse. But Gotti's high profile brought unwanted attention. But in mob case after case after case... I'm going to bust his jaw. That's number one. And number two, whatever he's got in jewelry, I'm taking it. You understand Informants and recordings show the crime families continue to muscle in and make money from fraud to union ripoffs to no-show jobs. Uh, there's going to be a guy that's going to be needed there to count the trucks, sit in a trailer, do nothing, and uh, I think it's perfect for you. Now with this apparent hit, investigators looking to see why there is a recent uptick in mob-related violence. The five families somewhat weaker, but law enforcement officials describe their organized crime strategies as kind of like mowing a lawn. You have to keep at it. And last night's hit now bringing a bright light on the Gambino crime family that out of late had been operating in the shadows. If there was a Mount Rushmore for undercover operatives, FBI agent Jack Garcia's face would be carved into it. A legend built behind his undercover infiltration of New York's most infamous organized crime family, the Gambinos. Their hierarchy was a who's who of gangland. Carlo Gambino, Paul Castellano, John Gotti. We start with Jackie Boy's most unusual path to the FBI, to America, born in Cuba and as a first-person witness to Fidel Castro's takeover. Well, I was born in Cuba, and um, I was born in 1952. So in 1959, January 1st, Castro came to power. 
my father worked for the government, so of course, you know, he had to leave in the cover of darkness with actually the assistance of the FBI. The next day, the stormtroopers raided our home, and they were looking for my father, and we had to move from my home to my grandparents' home. And my mother was a renowned opera singer in Cuba. So I lived on their socialism for nearly three years. While growing up in Havana, Jack was subjected to the communist socialist brainwashing of Cuba's youth. I also remember the indoctrination process that I was undergoing in Cuba. I went to one of the better schools in Havana, private school called Maristas, which were the Maris brothers. And I remember clear as day that once Castro came into power, the military saturated the school and were present in all our classes. And I remember sitting in there as a kid in our uniform, and there was a guard, uh, uh, a military guy, and he would specifically say, you know, over, make sure that the brothers and the nuns were teaching the right thing. And one day he said, kids, I, it's hot in here. I said, I want you guys to all pray to your God and pray for ice cream. And all of us kids, you know, you're a kid. You put your hands together. You pray to God, please, please, have ice cream. And he goes, all right, open your eyes. Did you see any ice cream? They all said, no, we were disappointed. He goes, now I want you to pray to Fidel and pray real hard for ice cream. And we all were praying to Fidel, and out of the front door comes a guy carrying an ice cream. Jack and his family immigrated to the United States in 1961. His parents emphasized assimilation to American culture, the value of education, and learning the English language. And that's when we came to the U.S., came to New York up in uh, Washington Heights, and we didn't speak any uh, English. Uh, we came with just the clothes on our back, uh, no money, of course. So we came in, sold snow for the first time in our lives, you know, of course, went to a public school uh, as opposed to the traditional Catholic schools that, uh, and private schools that we were going in Cuba until so I was able to learn English. And how I learned that is our father taught us the best we could. He really pushed for us to learn English. He wanted us to assimilate. And however, in the back of his mind, he always felt that we would be returning to Cuba, that somehow this banana republic under Castro would fall. But it never did. So after learning English, then I moved to a Catholic uh, high school in the Bronx, Mount St. Michael. And I went there, uh, I think it was in the sixth grade. It was in the sixth grade. Um, and my parents really had to work very hard. My father, who was equivalent to like the treasurer of Cuba, he worked in the tribunal center of the accounting. He um, uh, was now working three jobs, uh, two as a bookkeeper and one as a uh, warehouse guy and raising enough money. Cause, and my mother went to work at a factory, but they worked here and everything they sacrificed was for us to put in our education. Our father believed that, hey, they could take away your home, your car, but they can never take away your education. While in high school, a coach noticed Jack's physical size and recruited him to join the football team, where he struggled to learn the game. Then my freshman year of high school, the coach recruited me because I was this big mama Luke. And he says, hey, you got to play football. And I didn't know what football was. Cuban, you play baseball, you know. So sure enough, I go out for the team. I sucked. I, I, you know, they gave me a, uh, 
I'll never forget that they had to order a white helmet, and our colors were like Michigan, blue and gold. They didn't paint that helmet for two years. So I had this big old head, and I would sit in the bench because I didn't know the game. I was learning it. And it wasn't until my junior, senior year that I finally clicked on. Ultimately, Jack excelled on the field, earning scholarships to play college football. I went out to West Texas State University, played with this great coach. They fired him. Uh, then I went to a junior college. Um, from there, I went to the University of Richmond. Like many young people, Jack was unsure of his life's path. While searching for answers, almost by accident, Jack was inspired toward a career in law enforcement by a true story captured in a Hollywood film. And then after I finished at the University of Richmond, the senior year, it's when we went to see the movie Serpical. And that was with my inspiration. That's when that comes that moment in time when you say, well, what do you want to be? Well, I didn't know what I wanted to be in college. I was just playing ball, chasing girls, partying. You know, didn't even think about that. This is the way the world ran in the 70s. And sure enough, uh, I saw Serpico and I said, I want to do this. I don't even want to be an undercover. I want to get into law enforcement. Becoming an FBI agent isn't easy. Jack found that his family's prior life in Cuba would be an obstacle. His patriotism won out but not before having to overcome a dossier the CIA had prepared on him. Life is always a matter of timing. There was absolutely uh, no jobs available. They were actually cutting back the NYPD. I applied with every agency, ATF, DEA, Secret Service, local cops, every, even Richmond Police Department. Nobody was hiring. But keeping in mind, besides applying for all the police jobs, I also applied for the FBI. Um, and the reason was that we had two players on our team whose fathers were FBI agents. So I figured, all right, let me apply for law enforcement. I applied for the greatest law enforcement agency in the world. Apply for that. Apply for all the cops. Didn't hear from anybody. Two years goes by. I'm watching Univision television, and I'm watching some Spanish-speaking Anglo who was butchering the Spanish language, telling how they're looking for Spanish speakers in the FBI. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, wait a minute, I got an application for that. I applied like December of 75. I, I, I don't understand why aren't they doing anything my application. So, of course, I called there, they searched, and they found out that the reason why I was never contacted is I was not an American citizen. I always saw myself as an American citizen. I mean, you know, I bled red, white, and blue. But what happened was I had never gone through the process, so I started that whole naturalization process. And finally, in the bicentennial year of 1976, I was sworn in and became an American citizen. So, of course, now I'm moving along with the FBI, how to take the test, and uh, uh, trying to go through that whole process. And out of nowhere came the FBI and saying, look, uh, you did well on your test. We want you to uh, come through. And then finally, in May of 1980, I was appointed as special agent uh, of the FBI, which was such an honor to me and like such a, uh, an amazing ride. I got in the Bureau in 1980, and I was one of the proudest moments of my life. And uh, here I am, a Cuban kid who came to America and 
Next thing you know it, I'm not only an American citizen of this great country that welcomed us, me and my family, as well as all the other Cubans in, but got an opportunity to get into the FBI. After I was an FBI agent, I applied for that Freedom of Information and Privacy Act, and I saw all these redacted communications from the CIA, in essence saying, this guy is Cuban, born in Cuba, and the possibility of him being a mole could exist, and our recommendation is not to hire him. I kind of went on this crusade and said, hey, listen, we hate Cuba Castro. You may hate Castro because that's your job. I hate Castro for what he did to me and my family. Jack didn't initially embrace the undercover life. He first tried to fit the stereotypical role that many of us hold of the button-down federal agent. Went through Quantico and the thoughts of becoming an undercover were over. I came out like a mini uh, uh, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. You know, I wore a three-piece suit. I had the wingtip shoes that we used to call the thousand eyes. And I had my hair nice and cropped. You know, I was, I was an FBI agent and I worked bank robberies and fugitives. Jack's involvement in narcotics enforcement and the investigation of radical extremists allowed him to show a flair for street work. He developed his skills and put them to use in a myriad of undercover operations where he honed his tradecraft. Jack's street sense became obvious and undeniable, and he was offered an opportunity to be the point man on the FBI's linchpin, investigation of La Cosa Nostra, the mob. We started getting involved with narcotics in the FBI, and since I spoke Spanish and I was also involved in some anti-Castro group investigation of Omega-7 and Alpha-66, they automatically got me involved in that. And then next thing you know, I'm working undercover in 1984, like full time, because there weren't really that many Spanish-speaking agents, never mind Spanish-speaking agents who were capable of doing undercover work. And from then on, I just started working dope. I went to Philly and, and, you know, working dope cases. Jay, you've done tons of them as well. You know, it it was always uh, very interesting. And uh, from there, it led to police corruption cases, murder fires, Russian organized crime, Asian organized crime. And uh, finally, at the end, I uh, was asked uh, by one of the agents that I have worked the Russian case with, if I'd be interested in infiltrating the mob, because they had this mob situation, including the Albanian mob, and I would be the type of guy who would be perfect. They were shaking down a strip club, and these guys were really bad guys, and I told them, well, you had me at strip club. So it was kind of like, from then, that was kind of the beginning. Uh, That's kind of how I got involved in undercover work. Jack has an imposing physical presence. He talks about how he put that to use and how it helped him overcome skepticism. It it worked to my benefit. Um, One of the things, like I said before, was that the FBI did not really mirror the demographics of our society. You know, everyone kind of looked like agents, wingtip shoes, you know, the whole bit. Here I come. I'm a large figure. I'm 6'4". Now I'm about uh, 320. Let's just leave it at that. But anyway, I was this big guy who spoke Spanish, and uh, I found it 
that when you're working narcotics, um, it really, it helped me a lot. It also helped me as I started gaining weight because there was no way, and we've even had situations where an informant has gone bad and said the guy is an FBI agent and the bad guy has come to us. He says, just to think that nut this guy is, he says you are an FBI agent, you. How the hell is wrong with this guy? It was not a believable thing the way I looked. My hair was down to my back. I had earrings, the goatee, the whole nine yards. All of those I used in my benefit because it kind of disarmed the individual of having him uh, worry that I was involved in law enforcement. Jack compares his experiences with the mafia and how they were vastly different than the other crime groups he had investigated. The thing we've learned, Jay, and you as an experienced undercover know this, is that every organizational group, whether it's drugs, Asian organized crime, or wherever, there is no accountability from our part. We don't have to report to the bad guy. We don't have to tell the bad guy where I'm going or where I've been or what I plan to do. It's one bad guy talking to another bad guy. The mob, however, it's a whole different animal. There is reverence shown to this individual by all these people around him and in their neighborhoods. And there's deference that you have to show them. It isn't where you, they need to know where you're at at all times. I remember the old man calling me the first time, and I didn't answer because I was busy doing other things. And I see him the next day. He literally read me out. He says, why didn't you answer the phone when I called? I said, I was busy. He says, let me tell you something. You're never busy for me or anybody else. You understand? And I go, what are you talking about? I was busy. He said, no, how do I know that you're not arrested? and that you're not now cooperating with the feds. How do I know where you're at? I need to know where all my guys are. And he would do that. He would call guys all hours of the night <clears throat> under the guys that, hey, he would call me, hey, Jackie boy, I'm sitting here, I'm watching the Turner Classic Channel's great mo a cowboy movie, Real Bravo. He didn't want to tell me that. He just wanted to make sure I answered the phone because he knew if I answered the phone, I was not in jail or I was not involved with anything. So there, there is accountability with the mob. Jack learned the protocols of mob life. The key factor, money, and what you do with it. You make money, you've got to kick it up. Money always flows up in the mob. It's not where, you know, the boss or somebody in the crew makes money and you get a little taste. No, there is no taste for you. You have to give the taste to the boss, who in turn gives it up to chain. And he takes it up the flagpole. But that's the, the way it was mine. So the mob became a more of a difficult case for me to work than having worked the dope cases. Because if a bad guy would say to me, hey, you didn't call me yesterday, I would say, what are you, a cop? What do I got to call you for? They just don't ask those type of questions. You call them, you set up your meeting, and you show up. They don't care about anything. You're transacting business. The mob is a whole different animal altogether. Because in the mob, it's all about being an earner, being a guy who makes money. And as long as you're making money and you're doing the right thing, which is picking it up, then you're in good graces with the mob. And that's why I think I was able to to show the old man that I was indeed a good earner 
because I was out there hustling. I would say, look, I got a guy down there who's moving some swag. I got a guy down in, uh, in Atlantic City who's uh, just scored something. And then what we would do sometimes, just to be creative, we would actually tell them, I got some television with plasma screens at that time. So I said, I got a couple of them. So he says, great. I, of course, give him a plasma screen. But then I say, you know, anybody else, he wanted to look good because it was a discount price. And I sold it to the boss of the Gambino crime family. I sold it to a couple of captains. And I sold it to them as something like $1,000. And we were buying them at, at, uh, uh, at Best Buy for something like six or seven grand. But they were, they were the, um, televisions that we purported as being stolen. So it showed that. The same thing with us going into the forfeiture vault of the FBI. I would get watches and tell them I had a crew of Mariel Boatlift Cubans in Florida, because that's where I was from, who made a couple of scores from drug dealers. So here is a couple of Rolex that I have, and I would sell them to him for around four to five grand. He sell them for around eight. He made 3000 like in two seconds for each one. And again, it showed that I was involved in criminality. It shows the fact that I was doing the right thing and making, allowing for my boss to make money. Even the most skilled and successful undercover operatives are in awe of the volume of work Jack managed to juggle, simultaneously balancing multiple investigations and playing several characters is a large part of what makes Jack a legend. I didn't, it wasn't designed. It wasn't by design that this happened. What happened is, you know, as an undercover, the more work you do, you kind of get yourself a name somehow. And you get other agents say, look, I got an undercover case. Hey, yeah, use Jack, use Jay Dobbins, you know. But the problem is I was working other cases. So what I would do, and getting back to that story that I'm saying where there was no accountability for the other guys, I could work multiple cases. So I was working these dirty cops down in Hollywood. I was working dirty cops up in Boston. I was working a police, a, a political corruption case in Atlantic City. I was working your garden variety dope cases, but I didn't have to tell them anything. The only person that I had to concern myself about was the mob. So what I did is I used that, them cases, as a way to help me. I would tell the old man, it says, look, Greg, I gotta go down Atlantic City. I got a guy over there who's a mark. I'm trying to make a score. I'll let you know. It looks like good. He'll say, oh, okay, Jackie boy, you need anything, call me. Now, I went and worked those cases, you know, and I, of course, would contact the old man when I was down there and go with him. Now, when I came back, it was either it didn't go through, or if it did, we'd give him a tribute envelope from the Bureau. We'd give him a couple of thousand dollars as a tribute which was what you're supposed to do in the mob. So we give him some money and say, I made a little score. Here's your tape. So he was happy. And at the same time, he encouraged me whenever I went other places, because it wasn't like I would go for a week. It was always one of those quick turnarounds. So the cases kind of became, I didn't expect to do all these cases over the years. I like uh, by design because it is very, very stressful to say the least. But I had five different phones. I have five different identities. 
I was juggling it. It was bad enough I wasn't seeing my family, and I had all different identities. One case, I'm working as a knock-around guy, wise guy. Another where I'm working as a Cuban drug dealer. Another guy, I'm working as a Cuban money launderer. So all of these cases I had to get into before I worked. But there was no accountability outside of the mob. So all of these other cases, I think, benefited me because I was also able to go to places and be able to speak as if I was from there. I did a lot of cases in Miami. I knew Miami pretty well, but I didn't know Miami well from living there. I knew Miami well from working there. So I knew all the bars, the good restaurants, and, and all of that. So all it was, it was an evolution that of going through these cases that did it. Again, not by design, it just so happened. So when one would go, another one would jump in. So yes, it was a strain, absolutely. But, you know, you, it's just something that before you know it, you're in it. And that's what happened with me. The sacrifices Jack made served a greater good, although damaging to him personally. The potentially compromising elements of undercover work are many and dangerous. Money, booze, drugs, women, gambling. Those temptations have led to the downfall of some. Jack had his own vice, but it didn't harm his investigation. It enhanced it, his appetite. Now, in hindsight, did I, what I did, I thought I did, it was good for the Bureau. But it was not good for Jack Garcia. Because it, it really, I think my health was somehow affected. And I'm not crying about it, this and that. But it is a stressful thing. And, but I'm fortunate in a way, because as you know, as an undercover, Jay, there are people out there who either go to the dark side, guys who break up their marriage, guys who take an alcohol, who gamble. Well, I didn't do any of those things. What I did do is I ate. So I gained all this weight because that was my comfort. That was where I did. And that was, and also the weird part about it is I was gaining weight the more I was loved. The Italian culture welcomed me. They would love watching me eat. They would love feeding me. If that sounds, it was the perfect marriage. They love to feed you and I love to eat. So everything was just, working, uh, you know, together. But in hindsight, I should have stuck to one case like all agents do and not done. But I also couldn't say no. I couldn't say no to a second serving. And I couldn't say no to a fellow agent who asked me if I could help them out. Jack is best known for his landmark infiltration of New York's most notorious mob family, the Gambinos. His focus, Gambino shot caller Greg De Palma. Well, during the course, what happened is I became the driver to a captain in the Gambino crime family who is best known with that famous photograph that was presented to Congress with all the mafia bosses, including Carlo Gambino, Paul Castellano, and Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra's arm is draped around Greg De Palma, which was the guy that him and I became inseparable. I became his driver. I really, uh, this guy, I went everywhere. And what was great about him, he was described by John Gotti as the typhoid Mary of organized crime. Because this guy, even though he was in his 70s, he'd never grasped 
of how what the capabilities of our government, the FBI, in catching him and putting bugs in. He loved to talk, and the angrier he got, the more he talked. So for us, it was a gold mine. That's why we hitched the wagon to Greg De Palma. And that's what he would do is I would drive him to a meeting that he would meet with the younger boys, and I would hear what the meeting is about. <clears throat> I would hear that the night before, so I would alert the uh, surveillance squad through the case agent to cover this meeting. We would cover the meeting and see who the players were there. And then when he got back in the car, when I drove him back, he would tell me what the meeting was about. Now, that's a big no-no. Jack tells us about the indoctrination ritual of becoming a mafia wise guy. Because what happens in the mob when you get straightened out is you become part of what the mafia really is. It's a secret criminal society that exists only to commit crimes, murder, and mayhem. And, that, and that's basically what the mob is. But it's a secret society that you have to go through this ritual to be straightened out. Now, you say to yourself, well, how do you get straightened out? Well, you know, what happens is it's not that it's classified. They don't put it in the classified on Sunday on the New York Times. They don't advertise, hey, looking for guys to straighten out. That's not the way it works. It works where for you to be a wise guy or a good fellow, however you want to call that, you know, you got to first be able to make money. You got to be able to make money. Then you got to make sure that you know what to do with that money, and that's to kick it up. Always kicking the money up. Then you have to make sure you keep your mouth shut, and you're not one of these guys who are telephone, telegraph, and tell Joey. You have to keep your mouth shut. Then you got to be willing to do jail time. And then last, you got to be capable of violence. Now, once they identify you as being this type of guy, and somebody that's been around with them for a while and sees that this guy looks like a stand-up guy, then what they do is they're going to say, your captain is going to say, I'm going to propose you. So they send out a list to all the family members of your name and who you're going to be replacing in that family that dies. Because that's the only way you get replaced now. So let's say... Um, Vinny Bagadonis died in 1985. Well, my name will appear Jack Falcone to replace ba Vinny Bagadonis. Now, what they, the reason for sending that list, Jay, is to say, do I know any bad thing on this guy? Is Jack Falcone a rat? Did he ever rat on you? Or is he involved with another family? Maybe he's not on record with the Gambino, but he's on record with the Lucchese crime family. Now, after that period that is sent, it comes back, and if it's positive, then they tell you, okay, put on his Sunday best, don't say whatever you do tomorrow, we'll tell you where we're going to go, and there will we'll just, something good's going to happen. So bottom line is, they tell you where to go, you go to this, uh, usually a basement or another person's home, and there you get called into a room, all the mobsters are there. They then take the oath of Amerta, where they take a, uh, they cut your finger and you bleed into a, a picture of a saint. And then you set it on fire as you're juggling from hand to hand. And you're basically, uh, you're saying, if I betray the mob, may I burn in hell 
like this figure of this saint. So that w- then you're told who the bosses are, you're introduced, and you are now a made member. I didn't go through any of that. I only went through the list. They put my name on the list, and then there was an issue when they found out that there was a guy, a very high person in the organized crime that had cooperated and they were concerned so they put everything on hold and that person was joe messino who was the boss of the banana crime family so when things like that happen it gets put to rest i never went through it and then of course they decided to terminate the case which was upsetting to me but once you take that oath it really moves you to the next level Jack was frustrated that his investigation was prematurely terminated, just as his work had staged him to make the most damaging impact. And that was what I was frustrated about in this case, because the opportunity to make someone who is an agent into the FBI, that person could direct other undercovers to all the other mafia families that are in the United States. We could create other undercover cases, and instead of taking 39 guys like I did, we could have taken hundreds of guys. We have a lot of qualified people in the FBI and other agencies as undercover that could have gone in and infiltrated these other families. So I viewed it, and I write this in my book, as being a short-sighted decision to terminate the case, because I really felt that there was not a reason for it. It wasn't like my life was at stake. It wasn't any of that. Even though 60 Minutes reported that when I did the interview, I don't know where they got that because it was not in any ways. Yeah, I told them. I said, listen, there was a beating. I said, I stopped the beating because the guy was going to get killed. In reality, I can't do that because I'm an undercover agent. But I stopped the beating and they asked me, well, why didn't you give him some licks? Well, I didn't give him any licks because the guy was down. He had a cracked head and he was bleeding. One more shot, this guy would have died. So, but that, I could have fixed that. I was in a very tight relationship with the uh, captain of the Gambinos, the old man, and he really took care of me. But it was a decision that they chose to go with, so be it, the case ended. I think we had this opportunity to do this, just like I'm sure when you interview Joe, he had the opportunity to do this. These are things that come around every once in a while. We should take advantage of them. When you work either dope cases or any kind of cases, and you've done this many a times, Jay, is you climb the ladder until you can't go any further, and then you take it down. But you never take a case down during your climb because you don't know what other doors are going to open. So in this particular case, it, it, it was something that, that bothered me because I thought we had an opportunity. If they weren't straightening people out at that time, they would have in time. Give it a month or two months, but for whatever reason, they opted to terminate the case. Jack was the consummate professional undercover. His preparation and research were second to none. He tells us about some small, nuanced tricks of the trade that he used to enhance his credibility. Well, you have to, you know, to catch a criminal, you have to think like a criminal. You know, and how I prepared, not just for this case, the mob case, but the other cases, I prepare by talking to actual mob guys. By that, I mean informants. I talk to actual, if I'm doing a jewelry thief, I talk to jewelry thieves. And their stories, Jay, become my story. 
And that's how I prepare. So I know the lingo. I know what I'm supposed to talk about. But that's nothing new, Jay. You've done the same thing. We always prepare ourselves, Jay, in getting us knowing what to say so it is believable. So what happened is with the role, I, you know, mobsters don't walk around with a wallet. There's no such thing as a wallet. They have a wad of money, and the bigger the wad, it's prestigious. Because when you take that wad out, it shows your other mobsters, this guy is not a brokester. This guy is not a mortifam. This guy is not a broken down belief. This guy is making hustle. He's making angles. He's making it happen. So you always took out a wad, and then you put a broccoli band. They don't walk around with a driver's license. They probably have that in the car somewhere, and you know it's probably either one that's expired or from another state or bogus. And the other misconception everybody thinks that mobsters walk around with guns. Mobsters only walk around with guns when they're going to do a hit. New York City, which these mobsters know, because all the, the every agency besides the FBI, the Organized Crime Bureau, NYPD, are following these guys. If they get stopped and they found with a gun, they got five years. So you never carry a gun. It isn't like Joe Pesci takes out his gun and Goodfellas. That doesn't work like that. You take the gun out, and you got to be ready to make sure you're going to use it, and you got to look around your rearview mirror to make sure that you're not being followed because of the fact that it's the fear of you doing an automatic five years. So I played the role I saw because I learned how to dress, how to act. You know, I played more of a knock-around guy. My role was I grew up, uh, and this is one of the things we did in preparation. Unlike, as you know, Jay, when you work, and I'm sure you did the same thing when you infiltrated the bikers. It isn't when you infiltrate the mob, it's not like me meeting a doper on the street and doing a quick buy bus or me working with a doper doing. I don't have to show that person anything, any kind of proof. But with the mob, you had to. So I had to make sure that my legend, my backstop was so well because we were going to anticipate that we were going to be checked out. And when they asked me to join the union, I was ready. I knew the Social Security by name by number. I knew every single detail, and I even took it a step further. I went to a cemetery in one of the other cases that I had worked when I got done to the cemetery in Miami, and I found a Mr. and Mrs. Falcone buried. In the event, I would go to Florida with these guys, and innocently, or maybe not innocently, one of them would say, hey, Jackie boy, you're from Florida. I know your parents died at an early age. Let's show them their respect. Let's go see them, all right? We'll go over there, pay them their respect. What would you do? You have to be ready. So I knew what cemetery to go and what grave I would bring flowers to. The only thing I would hope is that the family of that Falcones are not going to be there at the same time I am. Jack became so immersed in the mob lifestyle that he was set up with insider jobs providing him even greater employment benefits than those he was receiving from the FBI. And how I was checked out, I was asked to join a union, Local 305, which was the restaurant union, where they gave me medical, they gave me dental, eyeglass. I had better benefits than in the FBI. And I was in this union, and I had to fill out a form with all the details. And much later, the old man told me, he says, Jackie boy, 
I said, we did everything. We checked you out. You're good and all that. But I knew he wasn't talking about the union. I knew he was talking about me. Jack talks about the value of confidential sources of information. Unlike a lot of guys who are born in these neighborhoods and they grow up and the family knows one another. Jay, how I got in the mob was, and as you know, the best way to go and infiltrate any group is through an informant. And you're as good as the informant. So if the informant is a rat, you're a rat. If he's a piece of garbage, you're a piece of garbage. Our informant was a solid type guy who was well known. So his vouching really helped me out. Now, as you know, Jay, we've also done cases where we do it cold. The problem with that, it takes years to do. And you waste a lot of time and money before you start getting I've done those. I take an informant vouching for me any day because I accelerate three years immediately by doing it. So I always did another thing when I did undercover. I would talk to the informant, find out what his reputation was. And because I know whatever he's, how he's viewed is how I'm going to be viewed if he's vouching for me. But informants, I've always looked as being very, very important. There is no great detective. There is no great FBI. There's no great any age. We're as good as the information we have from the street. Always the best agents and the best cops are those who have informants. Those are the people that really give us what's happening, the real up-to-date information on happening. And I'm a believer of that, and I always used it that you're going to have me do it as undercover. I want to meet with the informant way beforehand. And I've met with some guys. Some guys were like, are you crazy? I won't be caught dead with this guy. And I've turned it down. But, you know, there are those you say, you know what, I think this is good. This guy's got a good head on his shoulder. I think this guy is going to be good. And, of course, you too also have to worry about the person betraying you. Because at first, for whatever reason, they want to be informing, whether it's God, country, money. Sometimes when it gets towards the end, they start getting religion. Like, oh, my God, now it's going to come out. And they're capable of sabotaging you. Because that's happened to me numerous times. So it's a dangerous game. But what I always try to do is go with the recommendation with the informant and get him out of there as soon as possible. I want to deal with the bad guy. And that's how I did it with the old man. I went and dealt with the old man because I want to develop that situation. And in the end run, when it comes to trial, you put an informant on, they always have baggage. They've been to jail. They've been accused of lying. They've been murder, you name it. So it's better to have an agent testifying who uh, and more believable than an informant and less uh uh, a victim of an attack by the defense attorneys. Jack is a real-life witness to the treacherous lifestyle that comes with selling a false persona to violent criminals, then gaining a front-row seat to violence. You know, undercover work is very perilous, and at any time, you know, the people you're dealing with, they're nutjobs, you're criminals. They may not like one day what you're wearing, what you say, how you act, your body language. So it's always perilous in that regard. And that's why we always have to be on guard uh, at all times as an undercover, because there's always that one person that may not like you or that person who may suspect you. But, yeah, I, I had one instance where I was dealing with these gangbangers 
from Harlem, and they I was going to buy, supposedly they told an informant that they had some cocaine to sell. So we set it up to meet the following day at a diner up in Queens, and guys, of course, do the usual dope uh, uh, late, I'm late for the deal. They finally show up, and I said, all right, well, let's go. I got the money, you got the stuff. And the guy goes, well, we're waiting for the guy. So they had become brokers with these other Colombians, who then show up and find out that they were brokering from yet another group. So now we got nine people on the set, and the uh, gangbangers go, look, we got a house not too far from here. I got a whole bunch of coke there that I need distributed of kilo. Why don't we go there? We count the money. Everything is nice, nice. And we go there. And I said to the guy, I said, I'm not going. Now, the reason why I'm not going anywhere is because our set is covered. We have our agents in the parking lot. We were working a task force with the PD. I didn't want to leave that safety net and go to an unknown place, and God knows what's going to happen, and how are these guys going to set up. So the guy, the Colombians all said, okay, that's fine with us. So I was the outsider. So I said, listen, I, I, when I did my undercover with drugs, I would wear a lot of Santeria stuff. You know, because I know about Santeria, you know, with the call, the beat. And I said to the guy, I said, look, yesterday I had my reading with the Santera. And she told me that this is going to be a good spot. And the Orisha of El Aguas said, this is good. And the guy goes, look, I, I know. I have respect for that because they, too, were into Santeria. He said, however, I think we should move here. We're attracting a lot of attention. Says, he goes, let me call her, I said. So I walked to the diner, which is about 100 yards, and there was like a, the best of you with a payphone. And what I did is I called the agents that were outside uh, watching this in the van. And I said, hey, guys, listen, this guy wants me to move. It's your word. Personally, I don't want to move because you guys are here. He says, Jack, this doesn't look good at all. There are two cars in the parking lot, four guys. One guy is reading the paper backwards when a guy walked by. He said, this looks like it's going to be trouble. So next thing you know, he said, look, I think we got to take it down. You got enough there for a conspiracy. I said, yeah. We talked about dope. He told me about the quality. He told me how much he had, all of that stuff and who's so. He says, we're going to take it down. And sure enough, as he said that, just police cars and agents' cars just pulled onto the set. These guys scattered like cockroaches all over the place. Right? They all get pinched. They get brought back to the office. And in it, they all, um, of course, had dope on their body because they were users, which is the worst kind of guy you want to deal with as an undercover when you're dealing dope, the guy who's a user. So they have a user. They searched the cars. They found Tech 9. They had 9 millimeters. They had extra rope. They had tape, uh, duct tape. And one of the guys cooperated and said, we were going to take the big guy and take his money, and then we were going to take the Colombian. So technically, we survived that particular hit because this was, like, bad from the go. So you learn from that. But the possibility of, of any kind of, uh, of you getting hurt or, or worse, killed, could happen at any time when you're dealing with, uh, as you know, Jay, uh, as an undercover. It's, uh, because we're, we're right there. We're in, we've got front row tickets when you're an undercover. You're not 100 yards in a van where you're in safety and you're going to come out, you know, fully strapped with guns. We're right there, 
And technically, think about it. If the bad guy doesn't like you and you're in a restaurant or a club and nobody's around or someone's house, he could take out the gun, shoot you, and then the other team may come because they hear a shot. And what are they going to do? They're going to preserve the crime scene. There's nothing they could do. We're dead. Jack talks about his faith, the mixed feelings he holds towards the church, and his ultimate trust in God. I have mixed feelings, Jay, and this is the story. Yes, I say my three Hail Marys in the morning, my three Hail Marys at night. I believe in God. I don't believe in the church. I am hurt by what I've seen in the cover-up. I am hurt what I've seen some of these members do. Um, and it breaks my heart. So I don't feel I have to go to church to pray to God. And I believe God, and I know he's angry as could be. But what's important is that you say your prayers at night, and you believe in God, and you just don't call him when you need him. Call him just to say thank you. You know, and thank you for what you've done. Because that's the problem that, you know, a lot of people have. I find that, you know, you only call on God when things are bad. A family member is sick, you're sick, you're hurt. Well, how about one day just telling God, hey, God, thank you very much. My life's going great, you know. And that's what I did as, as I did this, and I still do that to this day. And I do believe God looks after me, uh, and like he did for you too as well, Jay. And, and I hope he looks after all of us, uh, but there's a lot of danger in the world. You know, and a lot of bad people, and you definitely need a, uh, you know, God in your life. Like many of the guests on Copland, Jack views his greatest accomplishment not in work achievements, but rather his family. I was married in 1984. My daughter was born the year 2000. So that just tells you how long I was away from home a lot, you know? So the birth of my daughter, whom I love and cherish, was born. And I think that was my greatest accomplishment and, uh, I, you know, of having a daughter, and especially so late in my life. I mean, my daughter is 19. I'm 67, Jay. So do the math, you know. Uh, so I'm very grateful that my daughter was born. Uh, as far as regrets, you know, oh, boy, that's a good one. You know, the only regret I have is, and is, had I known what I should have chosen working certain cases by doing more homework on my part. Like, if I know from the beginning that these guys were not going to climb the ladder, and by that, I don't mean all of them. Certain people who obviously seem to have controlled the case, the managers, weren't going to go on the top, but instead they wanted to stand on the podium and uh, get kudos and use cases to be promoted, then I would have not done it. Jack has some sound advice for those young agents and officers who have a false impression of what undercover work is. He inspires everyone on the job to simply be the best we can be. I remember, remember when the movie Silence of the Lambs came out? Everybody wanted to be an FBI agent and go into the profile unit. When Donnie Brasco came out, everybody wants to be an undercover agent. And as you know better than anyone, Jay, not everybody can be an undercover agent. This is something that cannot be taught. This is something that you're born with. 
We're born as undercovers. We're born as people who could be around any type of individuals. We're quick, fat, fast thinking on our feet. You know, we, um, we're able to feel comfortable. We're great bullshitters. <laughs> you know, we, we are like chameleons. And you're kind of, uh, this is what I think is something that I wouldn't want some police officer or agent to pursue undercover thinking like, wow, that's glamorous. I worked undercover. Because you could get yourself hurt or someone hurt. I think undercover schools are great, and the Bureau has an excellent one. But it should be to fine-tune your skill and have guys like you and myself and others tell of horror stories and the do's and don'ts and how to handle it. But unfortunately, a lot of people think that they could do undercover, and they really can't. And that's the part that that I, I hope the... Um, you know, the younger uh, guys or those who are looking to get into law enforcement is not everybody's a great undercover agent. Uh, being a being a detective or being a uh, an agent, there are great case agents. There are great source handlers. There are great administrative agents. There are great uh, agents that are able to help. Maybe you're just a helper, but that's okay. Be the best helper. Be the best case agent. Be the best source handler. But don't go into undercover work because, like I said earlier, you're right there in the front row. And things could go bad with a slip-up or something. And you don't want to do that to your family and to yourself. And it's a dangerous job. And, you know, uh, I, I just tell people uh, to make sure that they have those qualities not that they are going to get those qualities at the end of the school, but that they're born with that. And we see that, Jay. We saw that many times people are funny, quick-witting. They could talk around anybody. They're not withdrawn. They're not introverted. They're kind of more extrovert. Those are the guys that should pursue this field. The rest of you, find something else to do. Go do surveillance. Go work cases. Go, be, go create undercover cases for the others. And that's kind of the only advice I could give them. Jack's book, Making Jack Falcone, An Undercover Agent Takes Down a Mafia Family, tells us the full story that we just heard. It can be found online or wherever you buy your books. Jack is always an entertaining public speaker and is available to law enforcement groups and corporate audiences. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.